Welcome to Converge, a podcast by Common Ground Northeast. I'm Flora Skidmore. And I'm Neil Miller. Today, our guest is Pastor John Owens. Pastor Owens is a son of the city of Indianapolis. He grew up downtown in Indianapolis, fell in love with the city early on. He served as a worship arts director and creative consultant for 16 years before planting City of Lights Church in the spring of 2017. He's married to Kelly. They have five amazing kids. Pastor Owens, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. I, I want to start you simple, you know. Tell us about your background. Growing up in Indianapolis, uh, how, was it, how was that like? Yeah, so I, I grew up uh, in downtown Indianapolis, and particularly my dad's from Indy. My mom is from Muncie, Indiana. Uh, they met at Indiana State University, and um, and so Indiana has been a huge part of my family's history. Uh, we moved, moved, my parents moved away for a short stint as my dad was going to seminary at ORU in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's where I was born. But we moved back when I was about four years old and uh, grew up, first moved to Irvington, uh, then moved from Irvington to Hawville, kind of the, the near west side, uh, and then spent most of my time uh, in what is now considered Old North Side was the Heron Morton District. And one of the interesting things I think was with my experience compared to what most people think of Indiana, um, you know, during that time growing up, Reggie Miller and the Pacers were, you know, uh, on the rise and especially competing against the Knicks. And people would always talk about the Knicks versus the Hicks. And whenever I'd <laughs> mention Indiana, they would think about cornfields. And, and growing up where I was, I didn't see cornfields. <laughs> growing up in the city, it wasn't it wasn't what the rest of Indiana can typically be seen as. There was actually quite a bit of diversity. Um, you know, the church that we were a part of uh, in Hawville, I mean, it was black, white, Hispanic, Puerto uh, it was uh, Filipino and, and different socioeconomic uh, expressions. And so it was actually this beautiful kingdom representation that I didn't realize wasn't normal. Um, until I got older and began to explore the outskirts of Marion County. Uh, back then, <laughs> there wasn't all the development that there is now where you can kind of go from downtown all the way up to Hamilton Town Center pretty quickly. Uh, if we went up to Noblesville, it was to visit friends in the country. Uh, if we went to Fishers, you know, all that development in Fishers now, that's awesome. Uh, back then, it would have been the road the Fishers was lots of cornfields and uh, just a long drive up 69. And I, I would think, man, I don't ever want to come up here. There's just like Amish flea markets and Deer Creek Performing <laughs> Arts Center or something. It was it was not what it is today. But in that, I just I love the city. So my my experience wasn't really rural at all. It was really about loving the noises of downtown, loving the sirens and the people and taking the bus, riding my bike to the central library, taking the bus to go to the children's museum or go to a Pacers game at market square arena. So I I've, I've always had a deep love for the city. That's fantastic. It's great to have somebody who, who knows all that. And like you said, you, you started your, your life in a very diverse uh, church, a very uh, type of place that, that brings that out. Uh, give us a little bit about your own uh, background, ethnicity, race, and what kind of pressures you feel from that. Like, do you feel pressured to identify one or the other? So unpack that for us. For sure. Um, there's a, um, you know, my, my dad is African-American. Uh, my mom is white. And um, particularly, you know, even with my mom being white, one of the interesting wrinkles, even with her story, um, is that she thought that she was mixed until her 20s. Hmm. Uh, because she was raised, she never met her biological father. He skipped town when he found out my my grandmother was pregnant. And uh, there was a black man who I call my grandfather on that side by the name of Osi, who loved my grandmother and said that he's like, I love you. I'm going to take care of those kids as they're my own. So my mom grew up in a black community, raised by a black man, went to a black church in Muncie, Indiana, which Muncie is not Indianapolis. Uh, <laughs> so this was not, this wasn't a normal thing. Uh, and it was particularly during a time, um, you know, it, they, they had to find a pastor 
in Anderson who would marry the two of them, my grandmother and my grandfather, mm. because it was illegal at the time. And so even my mom's perspective as a white woman uh, was very different. Um, you know, being that she was, she met my dad in the gospel choir called the Ebony Majestics. That's so, a beautiful so name. It, like was, <laughs> it was, uh, you know, 49 uh, black faces in my mom's little uh, light skin face uh, right there in the mix. And so uh, to be perfectly frank, that side of uh, my mother's side, the white side of the family, uh, they had kind of, they'd rejected my grandmother because of her being married to a black man. Um, many of them didn't really, we didn't have much interaction with that side of the family. So I really mm -hmm. grew up uh, more so identifying with my dad's side of the family. Um, you know, part of when it comes to being of mixed ethnicity, there really are so many different experiences when it comes to that, because a lot of it, you know, has to do with who are you raised around? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what is the community that you're around? Not just the geographic community, but the, the familial atmosphere like um, because as we know, some of those differences, they're not just ethnic differences, there's socioeconomic differences that are at place. Um, but then as well, a lot of it varies uh, because of just physically how that mix translates. I've got two brothers who are fair-skinned, red-headed dudes. Hmm. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, one of the phrases I feel like has become more popularized in the last couple of years is this concept of uh, multi-ethnic passing versus multi-ethnic non-passing. Can you pass for white or can you not pass for white? And mm. um, and so with that, there can come a host of different um, different things that you navigate through. But I would say for myself, um, you know, it was interesting. Um, we would um, often notice, you know, just in different circles, people trying to figure out who we were. Um, I would say by by the grace of God and, and just our parents growing up, they were very great at helping us to really first and foremost identify as children of God. Mm -hmm. And out of that, be very aware of our culture. You know, we, um, you know, I really embraced and loved and uh, wherever we were and whoever we were around, but loved uh, my family in, in every every facet of it. Um my dad was very intentional to help us understand our our heritage as African Americans and what does that look like, you know, in in the challenges and the joys that come with it. Um, and and I think that so often we can put lots of emphasis on the challenges and not enough emphasis on the joys and the richness that comes with 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 that heritage. And so um, I would say where the pressure would come is that, you know, we are a culture of extremes and we're also a culture that loves to label you based on what benefits them or not. And I think mm -hmm. that what would be challenging, what was often challenging growing up, particularly uh, when I was uh, middle school, high school age is where we had particularly um, the Rodney King riots, uh, when we had the OJ Simpson verdict. Um, anytime that there was an issue of racial tension, um, people would uh, give themselves the authority to deem uh, whether I was black or not based on what my opinion was on any given topic. You know, so if, you know, my white friends, if I told them this and they would, if they didn't agree with it, it'd be like, oh, well, that's, that's because you're part black. Um, but if there were things that were maybe trending more towards uh, maybe the African-American populist thought it was oh that's because you're not all the way black and so there were different pockets that I wasn't black enough wasn't white enough um and, and what was even more awkward I remember one there was a girl I dated in high school and her mom thought I was Hispanic and didn't have a problem with her dating me when she thought I was Hispanic but when she found out I was half black then she didn't want her to date me. I was like, that is so <laughs> multi-tier racism right there. Wow. I, mean, wow. I was like, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even, I'm like, good night. So, uh, you know, I've, I've, it's funny because even when I talk about passing, 
because of my own skin complexion, facial hair, the things that I pass for aren't necessarily the things you want to pass for at times. Like, you know, during 9-11, uh, it wasn't good thing to pass for a Middle Eastern guy. And mm. and I would I remember I had a beard at the time. I have to keep that sucker trimmed low. <laughs> as soon as I walked in the airport, it got, I was like, I'm just going to take off my shoes, my belt. I'm going to walk in because y'all could, I was traveling a lot. And I'm like, you know what? If I walk into one more airport and they say we're going to do another random bag search, I'm like, can this just be part of my process? Because let's move this along. So um, it's been, you know, or, you know, whether it's a spend, I've had pastors, even just well-intentioned pastors, Flo, you would think this is funny, is uh, there was a pastor that came and he was actually a missionary. He and his wife were in Honduras and they came back to the state. He was playing this outreach event in downtown uh, at, or near east side of Nashville, where I was at the time, and he invited me to come and lead worship. And uh, I went, I had a worship team, we did sound check, and I said, man, pastor, how's it going? And and he looked at me, he goes, man, it sounds great, but um, you're going to do these songs in Spanish, right? And I was like, no, no, man, like, I don't speak Spanish. And he goes, wait, you're not Puerto Rican? Oh, my God. I took Spanish my freshman sophomore year of high school, but that's it. Like, so... They had me on the side with a tutor talking about some alrededor, alrededor, <laughs> like all, learning, learning all these songs and Gloria Dios. So, uh, again, based on my complexion and my makeup, there was just the assumption, oh, you must be this or you must be that or you must think this or you must think that. And so um, the bonus in it is it's, God has just really challenged me. One, I've, I've grown a great just love and compassion from being able to look at different perspectives, uh, but then also learn how to be grounded really in my identity in Christ and not necessarily by the labels that we can easily put on people uh, based on, you know, all the different factors. So mm, amen to that. I absolutely relate to everything you shared just now. I'm Hispanic. I'm very proud and loud, uh, Hispanic, but I feel like I've been in this culture for so long and my husband's white. So we run a, a, a little mixed uh, family here where we yeah. speak English because my husband doesn't speak any Spanish. And so I yeah. pass as white so much. And if you meet me in the middle of like end of January, beginning of February, where my melanin is all gone, <laughs> people ask me, do you speak Italian? Because you look Italian. Yeah. I'm like, I do happen to speak Italian. I am not Italian. I'm Hispanic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I'm not white. I don't go to tanning beds. I don't do none of that stuff. Um, I've been, you know, passed for Hindu, uh, Turkish, Arabic. Um, yep. All of that. I can absolutely relate to all of that. Um, and as, uh, when you, as you were talking, I was like stopping and thinking like, man, it, it, it both feels good to learn for me, like other people go through the same struggle from a different perspective. Right. But yeah. at the same time, like it hurts, right. It hurts that, that us humans as, as a society in general, um, depend so much on those labels to be able to engage in relationships with one another. I don't think that's the plan yeah. that God had for us. Right. And, and so I, I'm asking now, have you had those experiences in the context of church? Oh, a hundred percent. Um, a hundred percent. I think, you know, one thing I think you can also resonate with as well, Flo, is, you know, being married to someone who's white, um, you also understand that your children are going to have a different perspective. So I, I, I look at my kids and um, I have some that look different. I definitely have some that unless people see me, uh, they assume they are white. Uh, I've got a light skinned blonde child. Okay, talk about the comedy of genetics. And uh, I would walk around uh, in our kind of four-year area when he was a baby, uh, so my wife could sit in the service, and people would routinely come up to me and ask me whose child that was, um, whose baby I was holding. Um, and, um, you know, with, you know, I would say most of the church spaces that I've been in um 
have been fairly multi-ethnic. Um, that's been something, honestly, I, I grew up, like I said, in a very diverse church. Um, when we left that church, uh, when I was about 11 years old or 10, 10 years old, is the first time that I realized um, and, and became very painfully aware of the amount of segregation within church spaces. Um, I would go to visit this church and I'd think, I'd t- ask my mom, mom, where are all the black people? Uh, and then we go to another church. We go to my grandmother's church. She went to Christ Missionary Baptist Church on the on the near west side. And I'd say, Mom, where's all the white people? Are you the only one? You know, uh, or we go to Blazels, and I'm just thinking, there's a lot of Asian people in the world. Where are the Where's the Filipinos hiding at? Like, and so um, because I got I experienced this beautiful taste of diversity, it ruined me. And so I found myself yearning and longing to be in spaces that I felt like reflected the kingdom diversity that I see um, as that I feel like what is given to us as the body of Christ to anticipate in Revelation is this massive family reunion of, as the scripture says, all nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And um, I understand that there's going to be, um, there's different missiological contexts, right? If you're planning a church in Noblesville or in certain pockets where it's predominantly white, if you've got five black families, you might have all the black families that are in that community right there in your church. Mm-hmm. Um, however, the city of Indianapolis is way more diverse than that. And so it would often grieve me that there what that wasn't reflected more at least within 465 and i think over the years it's even spread out more so mm-hmm. um, but where i would say going back to to what you were talking about i think one of the challenges again can be because of the lines especially the hyper politicization uh, uh however you want to say it um, politics really creeping in to the church space and in many ways um, hijacking or taking over um, our ability to think from a kingdom perspective. Um, I, I found more and more, really, it really does come down to whether or not I agree, condone, or endorse one's political viewpoint, whether or not I am labeled one thing or another. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I've heard, I've heard the most overt racist comments and i've heard the most nice well-intentioned racist comments uh that you can think of you know i've you know heard the one that was meant as a compliment but really was like really sideways where they're like you know john like you're one of those good guys you know you're not one of those thugs you're like oh gosh oh oh lord you know john you're so well-spoken uh, you don't sound like a black guy. Oh, okay. All right. Wow. Here we go. Uh, uh-huh. You know, and and then on the flip side, you know, some of my, I've, I've received many wounds uh, at, at times from people who, um, whereas even as I said, I've identified far more as an African-American male in this, in this nation and in my experience. Uh, at times, some of the greatest wounds have come from those of my family and, and friends, and at times, uh, not 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 intentionally, but unintentionally, uh, dismissing my point of view because um, of me not taking hold of certain deep wounds and bitterness, or honestly, even just for the fact of me marrying a white woman, uh, mm-hmm. feeling some levels of betrayal. And so, um, you know, really, when it comes down to it, we know that churches are not buildings; they're people. And the human experience, um, it, 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 it affects every space which, where there are humans. Uh, and that's part of the joy of it. You know, it's like we know the church is not a bunch of people that have figured everything out. It's actually that we just recognize and come to a place, hopefully, that we recognize we haven't figured it out. God has. And so we're inviting him or rather answering his invitation to deal with our brokenness. And that's every aspect. It's our you know, it's the way we see each other. It's the way we see ourselves. It's the way that we look at the world around us. Wow. 
it's it's really telling, like you said, to talk about uh, politics being a dividing line that's there. I know another topic that you're passionate about is the arts, creative arts. Um, can you tell us a little yeah. bit about how that plays out in your church and, and also just like cultural expressions um, that we see um, in, in churches and, and how they should be there and how that can be both something that unites us and something that's also like a preference, like uh, it's not my style, so I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah, I appreciate you asking that. So, you know, particularly when I think about artistic expression, um, you know, I, I was kind of, you know, when you, you can look, especially Indiana, Indianapolis, we're very familiar with Peyton Manning. And you can look at his family tree and you got Eli Manning, who played for the Giants, their dad, Archie, who played for the Saints, uh, their nephew, who's going to be playing and drafted shortly. You I mean, you could see this legacy of sports. Uh, through that family. My family, it was really the arts. Uh, my parents, as I mentioned, they got to know each other in the Ebony Majestics Gospel Choir. Uh, they actually met each other at a, uh, they met each other at a talent show. My dad was singing and my mom was a juggling clown. No lie. <laughs> wow. this, is, this was the setup. What was even more awkward, Flo, is that my dad's date was actually my mom's roommate at the time so he came with her and ended wow. up marrying the clown so that did not pan out uh, for that date scenario uh i know scandalous but uh so so we got it honest in terms of just having a really deep passion for music and the arts and my I, I, again i just credit my parents of exposing us to, to all kinds of music um you know i had a deep love i mean we i remember listening to stevie wonder records and many ripperton records and also listening to kansas you know and and listening to second chapter of acts was like old school christian like jesus movement stuff um and we would go my dad and mom would take us to the symphony and they would take us to my grandmother's church christ missionary i love choir and gospel and i love classical i sang in the indianapolis children's choir which opened up so much to me but i also loved rock and roll music and so there were so many different things that i would say um were seated that really helped me frame not just the way i looked at the arts and music but so much is learning how to appreciate a diversity of music uh to be able to not i didn't have to put classical music against rap music i could actually appreciate and, and embrace and celebrate them both and so I was exposed to a lot of great things growing up. The Asante's uh, Children's Theater, African Children's Theater, Deborah Asante, who is a master storyteller. She is a legend in the city and, and beyond. Um, I sat in at a storytelling session uh, when I was a kid at one of the libraries downtown and she was speaking. And I remember just staring at her thinking, I wanna be able to tell stories like that woman. And then found out she had a kid's theater and then I could be a part of that. And it just, man, it just brought so much life. And I learned so much about myself and having confidence and, and really um, this, this uh, esteem and honor in the richness of the African heritage of, of telling stories and transferring history uh, in this different medium, medium of the arts. And so many of the shows that we would do we're really telling, retelling these historical uh, events and talking about the heroes of the Black experience and the culture. And then in the Indianapolis Children's Choir, just the range that I learned there, I, I would say so much of what I learned was in, about leadership, about valuing people, about appreciating cultures and, and the richness of heritage and history and how it's transferred in the arts was from these experiences I had as a kid. And so that fueled me to be able to utilize those same tools and that same medium to help young people, where, wherever they're from, whether they're from downtown or whether from the suburbs, begin to one, experience and, and understand who God is, but then also have a greater sense of their own identity and growing in their identity as particularly as leaders. You know, one of the things that I've always loved about educators in the arts is their ability to see beyond just what's in front of them. Um, you know, when Deborah Asante or Henry Leck, who was the director of Indianapolis Children's Choir at the time, or Mick Bridgewater, who was my choir director at Lawrence Central High School, or Jenna Adrianson, 
or, you know, uh, Judy Bridgewater, Kathleen, uh, you know, there was all these great people I think of and my mom and my dad, particularly who they weren't just seeing the kid who was in front of them, but they saw the leader and they saw the gifting and they saw the hidden treasure that with the right investment and calling forth in time would manifest. And, and I think, you know, particularly with our church, our vision was never to have just services on Sundays. Um, we, we, I'm all about the local church and building and having these moments. But part of what we want to do is, yes, we want our encounters on Sunday through music, through lights, through sound, through different artistic expressions. My wife is a spoken word artist. We want people to, in a very um, uh, experiential way, hear the story of God and where they fit in that story. And as well, we want to use and cultivate the arts throughout the week. Our vision right now is we're, we're in the process of looking and evaluating space that will not only house our church, but house a community arts center where we can make training and arts training available and accessible for wherever, whether you're from Carmel or Hogville, whether you're from North Central LC or what, you know, the, the Midtown area where the, where the, the gap where Broad Ripple used to be, uh, wherever you're from, that you can, through the arts, discover who God is and discover the giftings and the talents and the leaderships on the inside of you. Um, and so I'm very passionate about that. I look at our culture, particularly when it comes to music, when it comes to different performance pieces, even you think of the way that the, the musical Hamilton just swept the country. You know, you think about this musical that has this historical framework but has the median of hip-hop and rap and I'll never forget sitting in the seats in Chicago and right next to us are these two white-haired old people <laughs> sitting next to me listening to this rap you know uh this rap performance this incredible performance and thinking gosh like what other setting would this couple really be exposed to this expression or musical genre and yet the art are bringing people together. And so I really think that the arts offer an incredible way to help tell story, but also give language to joy, to pain, and to joint, um, joint hope that we can rally around. So that, that's where, one, I have a deep passion, of course, for the arts, but I believe that it can be a key to help bridge some gaps of understanding when it comes to understanding our own human condition. Yeah, I absolutely relate to everything you just said. And I'm an artistic person myself. Like I, I grew up in theater. That's what my dad does. He's a theater production uh, producer and director. Yeah. And I was an actress by age six. Um, yeah. So I, yep, I sing, I dance, I do whatever you need me to do. So long as the spotlight's not on me type of person. I, I'm, I'm actually, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a weird beast that way. But I, I, I can see how like different art expressions can join different perspectives into you know one experience and, and I feel like you particularly John are in, in a specific space that um it's actually I, I don't have a better word to describe it but but uh privilege you know uh, from from people in in different uh rooms in the church like you're standing uh in between two very different experiences historically for our city, for our country. Um, and you have this deep understanding of both experiences separately, right? Um, and you have experienced hurt through paper cuts, through micro microaggressions from both and even more experiences, yeah. right? Um, although you you really did nail that Gloria Dios, like a pro. Yay. So yes, <laughs> um, that I mean, still a microaggression and from that perspective, and I know that you already offered arts as part of the solution, but what would it be required from, from your point of view beyond arts for white and black churches to engage in authentically deep relationships that can yeah. grow the body of Christ? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I don't want to sound overly churchy and use overly churchy words, so I'll try my best, but I do as a follower of Jesus, I don't think that you, I don't think we actually have the capacity to have the conversations 
and walk through the difficult roads that we need to in order to reach that kind of family apart from the grace of God and being transformed. You have to have a new mind um, because our natural mind, and, and this is not black, white, this is just human, is self-preservation and selfishness. Um, we want to protect our, ourselves. We want to protect our property. We want to protect our possessions, our people. And we are wired for that. That is our natural primal wiring. And to, so to think different is really otherworldly. To think different requires that our minds are renewed. And in that, a big part of it is walking in supernatural humility. Um, so we, we have certain, um, we have certain, some churches call them their core values. We call them our, our pursuits, our five pursuits. Um, our five pursuits are truth. We want to pursue the truth of God, the presence of God. We want to pursue honor. We want to pursue family. We want to pursue joy. Um, but particularly when it comes to building a multi-ethnic, multi-generational family that comes from different socioeconomic places, I believe one of the key pursuits is the pursuit of honor. And the way we frame it is to honor each other and to honor God is um, to truly see them rightly, right? So when I, to honor God, I have to see him rightly. I have to recognize he's not just my buddy. He's actually the ruler of all things. He is, you know, we even talk about the, you know, I know we can throw this um, phrase of kingdom minded. There is no kingdom without a king. So there's this sense that he is in authority and he is the designer and he is the head of the family that he has built. But then the next framework is to truly honor one another. We have to see each other rightly. So I have to see you rightly, Flo. I have to see Neil rightly. And, and, and wh who designates what is right? It's God. So uh, I have to see myself rightly. So I can't see you and I can't truly have the conversations that I need to have if I have an overinflated or underinflated perspective of who I am. Mm. Or vice, the same goes for you. If I ever look at you less than what God says of you, I can't have a successful conversation. If you look at me or if Neil looks at me and he thinks less of me than what God says of me, then we can't do that. So that's where I think we can run into a danger is this. I think one of the essential things beyond the humility piece is we have to really allow God um, and God's word to help bring definition to terms and not just be swayed by popular books and narratives and podcasts. Because though I think that there's lots of things that can be informative in some of the conversations, we can lose sight, particularly at one, one um, typical or one popular designation would be to try to categorize people simply as oppressor or oppressed, um, the haves and the have nots. Um, for me, one of the things that was always frustrating um, and, and being in many conference spaces, as I've been in lots of, I've worked as a creative director for many a national, international, local conferences, church conferences, and particularly in very predominantly white spaces in these, I would go to several conferences and it's gotten better. It's gotten better because there's been pressure uh, over the last few years. But I would often find myself in these majority white conferences and the only brown faces that you would see on stage were the poor black or brown children in Africa or in South America that needed you to sponsor them. Mm. And so there was this subconscious communication. It, the main speakers were white. The, maybe the performers were not white, but usually the performers were white. The, the breakout sessions were white. The only person that wasn't white was if it used it maybe the conference had a racial reconciliation breakout session. That person would be of color. But there was this almost this unintentional communication that brown faces need our help mm -hmm. and they don't have and we have. And so we have value, we have resource, we have these things, they have need. So Let's shame you 
or make you feel bad enough and have enough pictures mm. of brown kids with flies on their lips so that she'll give money. Now, I want you to don't hear what I'm not saying. I, I praise God. We, we sponsor children. Um, I think um, I praise God for the resources that have flooded and helped those kids. But what I'm, the negative impact of that is when I was growing up at 21st in Delaware, it was not the juice bars, yoga, you know, yoga spots and uh, craft delis that they have now, like the artisan <laughs> delis. They've got like Goose the Market, yoga. I mean, it's just, it's super nice. Of course, it's like the, the beauty of gentrification. Um, that's not what it was when I was growing up. And so I'd get a call from my buddies who lived in Geist and they'd say, Hey, John, we're doing a, a urban outreach, a block from your house. And they're like, Hey, come get a free backpack and some hot dogs and some free school gear. And I'd be like, bet free stuff. And my brothers and I we'd walk a block across the street. Sure enough, they'd have a tent, they'd have a praise team. And it was cool. I don't, I don't fault anybody that was there, but the mindset was, there are these poor urban kids who don't have school supplies, who don't have this, who don't mm -hmm. have that. We're going to come from our place and position of affluence, and we're going to go for a day, and we're going to give them some stuff, and then we're going to leave. Yeah. And it's the way that they saw us that affected their engagement. Now, juxtapose this. The homes that were in my neighborhood that were old, some of them, <laughs> some of them needed to be completely demolished. People now, why is gentrification happen? Because people look at a neighborhood and they're not looking at what's there. They're looking at the potential and what could be. Mm -hmm. So the house I grew up in that my grandfather sold for $70,000 was on the market five years ago for $650,000. Wow that neighborhood that I grew up in when I was moving back to Indianapolis, I couldn't afford to live in the hood anymore. Mm. Why? Because when people saw the homes, they didn't see poverty. They saw potential. Mm. They didn't see something that they were just going to come and mow the grass in one day a year and leave. They saw something that was worth an investment because there was already value there that just needed to be realized. Mm. And so it has to do with how, None of those people that were coming down necessarily saw me and thought, that's my future pastor. That's the future mayor of Carmel. That's the future head surgeon at Community North. That's the future uh, politician. That's the future superintendent of IPS schools. They mm -hmm. weren't thinking that. And because of that, they just saw me. They didn't see the hidden treasures that were there. And so in that, we got to change the way we see each other to have the conversation. You know, I have to be able to look at my white brother and sister on the north side or that's coming from the suburb. If I can only see my white brother and sister as an oppressor, I'll never see him the way that God says that the way that God sees them. Mm -hmm. And so we can recognize systems and patterns of brokenness historically. We got to see the truth to be able to deal with the real stuff. But unless we're able to see each other rightly, so that when we talk about equity and we talk about really kingdom mindedness, I need my black brother and sister that's in the church to be able to walk in the fullness of what it means to be a kingdom child of God who is made with this ethnic makeup and walk in the fullness of that and that be celebrated. I also need my white brother and sister to be able to walk in the fullness of the grace of God and what that means for them. I don't want them walking in self-hate and, mm -hmm. and shame that God does not, that's not their inheritance in Christ. You know, that's not their, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And so mm -hmm. that means it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. If we're going to have those conversations, we have to take on the yoke that God gives us and break every other yoke down. And so I think what we can't do and what I what I, I push against is we just try to flip the power structure mm. um, because it benefits, because it, it's more, um, uh, for lack of a better word, it's trendy or it's sexy right now um, to, to, to speak down or talk down um, to people uh, of white culture or European heritage 
um, and and we we have momentum of people of color to lean into some things and and, and mm. to get some payback in areas. I'm not saying that there doesn't need to be changes, uh, but what I'm saying is we 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 really the goal is not to get back or to get payback or to get revenge, but to say you know what we're finally getting to a space where we can actually have the conversations that we need to have so that people of every ethnicity feel and are able to walk in the dignity that God has given us. And that any place where that is not happening, that we break that structure down so that we can walk in the truth of our identity in Christ. Oh, man, that was a sermon. I love that. Um, And that was extremely like convicting to me. Like when you started off saying, if we look at each other less than what God says that we are, then like, that's where we got it. That's where we're going to start. When you first said that, mm-hmm. it was, it's like typical, okay, that sounds right. Church type stuff. Okay. I'm, I'm done with that. But then as you started to peel back those layers of what that means and what that, that looks like, like I saw myself all over um, like my own growing up experience about w- when you see black and brown faces, like you said, yeah, we, we know black church. We have one downtown that we go out and help like once a year. And we go and do mm-hmm. stuff like that. Yeah. And that, that, that's the context. And it's almost like we need that, that justification to say that, that, but they are different. Like they, they are different than us and they're, they're either, they need more or they're just like that. Or um, we, I think we even have some of this like hangover of like slavery days when it was like justified by the Bible. It says, no, it says in the Bible, based on this verse, you guys are the, the children of this person, the son of Noah. Therefore it's okay for us to, to treat you like this because it's all in the mindset of how we look at people. And man, that is, that is tough and deep to get out of. Well, and I think we don't have to look far to see, you know, it's one of the things that has turned, turned lots of people away from scripture at times. It's not the scripture itself. It's the improper application Mm -hmm. and interpretation of scripture where, you know, we know even particularly within uh, within the South, not just the South of the United States, but even in the Caribbean, how there were portions, there were fake Bibles that were, had removed chunks of scripture that had anything to do with, um, with the, the slaves being set free and coming out of captivity and, and the Exodus, mm-hmm. anything to do with the year of Jubilee, anything that had to do with the captives being set free was removed from these Bibles and given to slaves. And so, because they understood if a slave actually reads the whole of the scripture, they will know that they were not meant to be slaves. They will know Mm -hmm. that their identity was to walk in freedom. They would know that Jesus dignifies, God dignifies women when when the culture would make them small and less than that. Mm. that, And so anytime people try to use Uh, the scripture, particularly in that way, to make us think less than ourselves, you can tell it just, it smells like poor exegesis. It smells like very um, small thinking and and not really understanding the fullness of the beauty of God. That's why I believe, I really do. I'm I'm thankful for different historical resources and things, but, you know, I, I think that the Bible actually doesn't need a lot of additives and preservatives to speak against the issues of racism. Um, and, and I think that there's almost been this mindset that the Bible was insufficient or the gospel is insufficient to deal mm-hmm. with the issues that we're dealing with. And, and I would say, I don't believe it is insufficient at all. I think that the, the Bible and the gospel, uh, is complete and, and comprehensive. However, it has to be comprehensively applied mm-hmm. and it has to be built into our discipleship. Because if it's not built into our discipleship, um, then we're not seeing the actual changing of how we think and how we speak and how we act and how we treat one another. It has to be, you know, that's why you can have someone. And again, it, I mean, there's people that they go to church for decades and are still stingy and still greedy because at some level that area of the gospel did not they didn't put it to work in their heart that's why you've got people who have been in church for decades and are still lust hounds you know and Mm. and and they haven't allowed the gospel and the grace of god to come into that area of their heart to deal with the way that they view sexuality and the way that they view women the way that they view men 
In the mm-hmm. same way, you can have people that go to church and serve in deacon boards. I mean, let's not even, let's not, let's, let's go back into the Bible itself. This is not a new conversation. When you start looking at the early church and they're, they are having fights over whether or not Gentiles need to be circumcised, whether or not these people, these people, and even using derogatory terms, these unclean people, why do they get the benefit? Who did Jesus come for? I mean, that's one of the biggest arguments. Did he, he came for the oppressed. Why is he coming for a tax collector? Why is he even talking to Zacchaeus? Does he know how many people he's oppressed, how many people he's robbed, how many people he's disenfranchised? Jesus, what are you doing wasting your time with them? But yet Jesus flipping things on his script and saying, no, I came for all people. I came to speak to this man. I came to speak to this woman. And us learning in that process, again, how do we see each other? That's why he had to give Peter a powerful vision multiple times so that Peter would stop looking at Gentiles as unclean. He had to break. Peter was faithful. Peter was ride or die. Peter was, I will cut a dude for you, Jesus. <laughs> That's how committed he was. And yet Peter still had deep strains of racism in his heart mm. that Jesus had to deal with in order for him to be the vessel that he was in expanding the early church that we see coming out of Acts, you know, and, and spreading throughout. I mean, th- so this isn't, it's not new stuff. It's not new stuff for the people of God, you know, racism and dealing with it and Jesus calling it out. You know, one of the shows that I've really come to, to enjoy recently has been The Chosen. I don't know if you guys have seen that yet. Um, it's an amazing show. Um, I, I know this isn't a plug for that. I don't get any kickbacks for it. <laughs> but um, one of the things I've loved is how they've leaned into these kind of topics. And they've shown the tension that was already inherent in the different disciples that followed Jesus, where you had some that were zealots. You had some, you know, that were more affluent than others, some that were seen as traitors, some that had different socioeconomic experience, all these things. And in the midst of it, God is saying, you're going to be a family. And you're going to walk together and you're going to love each other and you're going to be a Mm -hmm. team. You're not just going to tolerate each other for an hour and 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. You're actually going to learn how to go through the trenches and walk with each other and care mm-hmm. for each other's families and, and care for the poor and, and not just the poor financially, but the poor in spirit. That means, you know, engaging not just those that are in the projects in the meadows, but engaging the CEO and Geist who is broken and is you know, may, maybe a day away from suicide attempt. Mm. So much that you say has resonated with me. And actually I'm, I'm in introspection right now, like thinking about my own marriage, you know, like I believe that here in my household, we run a little church, right? We're part of the church wherever we are. And I, and I look at my marriage and I know my husband's going to be like, why in the heck did you say this when he hears this podcast? But um, uh, me being Hispanic, him being white, like so many times at the beginning of our marriage in the early stages were like, I was feeling not okay. And I needed some emotional support. I needed him to hear me. And he, here he came with the white hero complex. Let me show you all the band-aids I have so that I can fix you. <laughs> I don't need to be fixed, dude. I just need you to listen and be in relationship yeah. with me, be in communion with me. And if like this issues continue to happen in like the smallest, like, you know, a relationship between two people who belong to a church, like it ripples. Right. Um, and I yeah. see the same patterns um, of, of cultural disjunction, you know, within the church that I'm currently a member of and other churches. Yeah. And I wonder for somebody like you who, who had, um, the courage to listen to the Holy Spirit and come back home and start something different, something new, a church that looks different, um, that is new. And uh, what would it take, do you think? Like, what, what, what sort of advice would you give people like us, like who belong to a predominantly white church, trying to learn and understand and engage in these authentic relationships? What words of advice can you give us so that we continue to to listen to the spirit and, and walk in the right direction towards racial reconciliation. 
Yeah. Um, man, that's a great, that's a great question. And, you know, I talked about humility and this piece of seeing each other the right way. I think one of the big ingredients, um, I know it is for us. Um, and I think it is for anybody, uh, is, is it's going to, it's, we, we have to have patience. <laughs> this is a marathon. It is not a sprint. Um, and we, we have to have safe spaces where, you know, even so we can have this conversation again about honoring people. Um, but part of the reason why we can see each other wrongly is because of the trauma or the experiences that we've had. And so, you know, when I think of, you know, even just beyond maybe the ethnic piece, when it comes to, you know, men and women, a lot of times, um, if, if you've been abused, um, if you've experienced sexual abuse or rape, uh, it doesn't matter how nice these people are, you have to deal with the pain and the very real trauma that you've experienced. And it's not so easy just to say, oh, well, they're not that person. You still feel that, you know, I, I would say even personal to us. So um, we have five children now that we steward, um, but we lost a little girl. Um, we have a sixth baby that's with the Lord. She passed away 10 years ago and she passed away in her sleep due to SIDS. We don't have an explanation. There was nothing that the autopsy showed. Um, and we had this most the most painfully traumatic thing I've ever experienced um and and with the deepest most painful memories and images like I I can remember vividly my wife handing my daughter to me after she had turned blue and laying her at the top of our stairs and starting to do infant CPR like I remember the feeling of doing that and feeling absolutely helpless and seeing my three-year-old son balled up at the bottom of our stairs because he's never heard mommy and daddy scream and cry like that. And then when I can, then, then of course, as immediately after that happens, as a parent, you're thinking, I'm going to do whatever I got to do to make sure it never happens again. And we're going to get the right heart monitor and the right mattress and where whatever we, you, you scour the internet. Right. Now, when we did that, I'll never forget somebody talking to me about the statistics. And the statistics are that there has never been a family that has lost more than one child to SIDS statistically. So statistically, it's never happened more than once. So the chances of you having a second child that passes away to SIDS if you've had one, it's non-existent. That statistic does not help me in my trauma of having that feeling and that sense. And, and our, we are, we had another daughter five years or another child. Uh, and I remember waking up and she was having difficulty breathing and immediately mm. being pulled into that place. Yeah. Now, wh why do I bring that up? Is that because of the trauma, the statistics didn't really, it, that made very little, that gave me very little hope. There was a little bit of hope, but that didn't deal with the pain that was associated. Mm -hmm. And the pain that immediately came up in, when I was in that position or in those places. And I think that we can't, we have to be careful. We have to look at truth. We want to look at numbers that we can. They don't tell the whole story, but we want to look at what's really happening. But we cannot ignore or belittle mm -hmm. real pain and trauma that's taking place. So you have to have a safe space for people on lots of different spectrums. You know, I know, I know white friends who were straight up jumped by black guys in high school, like beat up. Like if there was anybody that would have turned into a super racist, <laughs> you know, thinking about some dudes that just got pummeled because of their experience and they could project that experience on all black people and assume that all black people are thugs, all black mm -hmm. people are drug dealers. And he would be wrong for that, but I would also be wrong for ignoring that ache and that trauma. At the same time, I think right now, over the last couple of years has been honestly 
it's been one of the first times in my generation where I feel like people of color have actually been given permission mm. to talk about the pain and space to release the sound and the cry of that pain and allow it to be heard. Now, I also say it doesn't mean that that the cause of the pain is always right. The diagnosis is always the same, but we can't we have to create the space where cry, people can cry and people can ache and that, that people can bring, allow the Lord to hear their cries and have brothers and sisters, like you said, like you said, that aren't trying to fix it. Right. Yes, let's, we can work on the fixing, but sometimes I just need to be able to cry with you. I remember mm -hmm. that first year after our daughter passed, passed away, I didn't need somebody to explain to me the, the logistics of whether that would happen again. I needed somebody that I could cry with and I didn't have to explain why I was hurting so bad. Or if I did, I didn't have to be afraid that they were going to explain away my pain. Yeah. Don't explain away my pain. Like, you, you know, and, and I'm not even saying like, again, not every experience is exactly the truth. It's not exactly rational. Pain isn't rational. <laughs> Trauma isn't always rational. Fear isn't always rational. We got to meet people on the same, on the other side of it. I think we have to have the patience and the safe space for people to ask really stupid questions or really or questions that could, that could honestly in this culture, get them canceled to be, but, but to give them permission to be honest, people have a lot of honest questions. Like, um, you know, I just got friends that literally they, their hearts are broken at the issues of racism but they literally grew up in small towns in Indiana, Indiana, where the only person of color was like a mixed kid, you know, whose mom is white and she got pregnant and he, he was raised around all white. It's, they, they don't have, they're not around diversity or diversity mm -hmm. of thought or expression to know any differently than what they've been around. And so mm -hmm. they're literally like, they're good to offend you almost every sentence that they say because they don't know any different. And I think for us, our heart is we want to, I want to create a space where my brother and sister who, who have experienced various levels of injustice or various levels of pain, microaggressions, aches, trauma, mm -hmm. where they can come to the Lord and they can come into a community and they can be heard and that we can walk through that and work through that. But then also my white brother who is very privileged and has grown around all white people in an all white community where he can come and not be shamed, but being opened to a broader perspective of what the kingdom looks like and that he can ask questions and, and not be deemed as just a racist, ignorant, you know, blah, blah, blah but also be invited to come to a place of understanding and he can be heard or she can be heard. And I think that in that, I had a pastor that said multi building multi-ethnic churches is a contact sport. You got to bring your headgear because you're going to be offended. Mm -hmm. We know that we, we say it all the time. We embrace tension. It is the last, it is not a good church growth strategy. Can I tell you that? Like <laughs> literally what people forget, people think everybody's like diversity is great. Diversity, diversity, diversity. Diversity is another word for different, mm -hmm. different. And so you're actually inviting people that think different, that eat different, that listen to different movies and music and watch different movies and saying, Hey, we're going to somehow build together and so you're going to do that. And what we say is we look at it kind of like going to the music analogy. A guitar without tension is useless. You don't want a guitar with no tension. What you learn to do is you tune each string to the right tension so that when it's played together, it produces the sound mm -hmm. that you want it to. And so that's where we look at it as saying, you know what, we're going to have tension. We're going to have tension, you know. There's going to be people of different political affiliations. You know, I, I, we, we have people of different that have voted differently. We have people that grew up in different areas of town. We have people that have had completely different experiences from the other. And we're not trying to avoid that. But what we are saying is, can we walk in the humility that God requires and have the patience, the patience that God requires 
so that we can tune that tension and produce the sound that he's called us to. And I think that that's the invitation for any church. It doesn't matter whether you're an 80-20 church or whether you're a 94-6% church or whatever it is, is coming before the Lord and saying, God, who have you called us to be as a tribe? Who have you called us to be in the greater body? You know, Neil, I think, you know, I, I appreciate, even, even though as I give that, you know, story about people coming down to our neighborhood, I appreciate at least the heart to say, how can we serve others in our community? How can we go into a place that might make us feel uncomfortable? And even if it was just for a day, for a day, they allow themselves to be in a space that many people never experience in a lifetime because they're not willing to do it. But in order to produce what I think you guys are after and what I'm after, it is going to take more than a day. It's going to really take a lifetime commitment to say, God, help us. Help us to have these conversations. Help us to love each other. Help us not to take the bait of offense and be so easily, quickly triggered that we actually can't walk in Christ-centered love and compassion for each other. Wow. Yeah. Thank you so much for your vulnerability, uh, for opening us up, up to us, you know, with your personal story and the story of your church. It's it's really enriching to me. I'm 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 living this conversation both encouraged and also challenged. You know, at, um, praying, prayful uh, to explore what what it would look like for us to continue to to walk in grace, uh, but be okay with tension. I don't I don't think that yeah. that's a culturally why thing you know to do I, other cultures deal very well with tension I, I don't think I'm from my Hispanic perspective it also makes me like very uneasy like oh you mean that I'm going to be in tension and walk in tension at church the whole time um so I'm challenged in that way and I, and I thank you for that I, I really do yeah if I could just say one more thing it's like nobody likes tension most people don't I mean that's why we you know, you, and, and there's, there's not, there's nothing wrong with even enjoying certain things, right? It's like, mm -hmm. there's certain foods that we like, there's certain music we like, it's great. You know, I think um, there's certain cultural expressions that we connect to. And, and I think that that's beautiful. Um, I don't think, that's why I actually hate the term when people talk about being colorblind. I hate that because I think God made color. He, he, no, none of us want to go out and buy a black and white TV. We want the best HD 4K. We want, why? Because it displays the range and richness right. of color. I believe that God loves color. So, you know, the goal isn't that we all are, you know, colorblind and beige, but that we actually learn how to love and celebrate and see life in those things. And, you know, I think that I'll say this is that I do believe that unfortunately some of the narrative and some of the things that are being pumped out as solutions in the water right now are poisonous and can, can hinder us from actually loving each other and seeing each other appropriately. Um, but I do believe, and, and I, I do think this, that we're probably going to see the fruit of some of that in, in the next five to 10 years. And I think there's going to come a time where the churches and the people that do the hard work of navigating through the tensions and applying the gospel holistically and discipleship in our relationships. I think there's going to come a time where people are going to be looking, they're going to realize that certain things are not panning out how they wish it would. And they're going to be looking for churches who have done the grunt work. And, and that's why I applaud you guys. I applaud Common Grounds. Um, and, you know, I've had some great conversations with Pastor Jeff and, and with others. And the thing that's encouraged me is that you guys aren't avoiding the tension, that, that you guys aren't ignoring the conversations, but you're actually pursuing it. And, uh, and, and I believe it is going to bear fruit, you know, in you all and, and everyone that listens to your podcast. Amen. Amen. We, we are grateful for you and sharing your stories and sharing with us. You have done, I believe, uh, Deborah Asante, uh, a lot of pleasure in your storytelling ability. You brought so many, <laughs> so many good uh, references. And as you, as you were telling those stories, it's like, it's a great story. And then I'll see you, you take that turn and be like, oh, that's it. Like, 
it, it's just a beautiful way to, to picture all this. Thank you for being a leader in this space and for being somebody we can look up to um, and can help us in, in our journey. And we really appreciate you giving your time for this. Oh gosh, it's my pleasure. Thank you guys for inviting me into this conversation. I'm just, I'm grateful to be a voice, uh, to be a voice uh, to speak and, and one of many that are really pursuing that, not just at abroad, but man, we have some great people in our city. Uh, I, I love the city of Indianapolis and I'm grateful to be able to build with so many incredible men and women in the city. Well, thank you so much. We look forward to, uh, to hearing from you again and, and checking in and see how things are going. Yeah. Thank you guys. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And thanks again to Pastor John Owens of City of Lights for giving his time for us. It was an amazing show. We really enjoyed it. Uh, please continue to uh, check us out on your favorite podcast streaming platform. Tell your friends um, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Converge is a production of Common Ground Northeast. You can reach out to us at justice at cgnortheast.com. For Flora Skidmore, I'm Neil Miller. Thanks so much for listening and we will see you next time. Thank you for listening to Converge, a production by Common Ground Northeast. If you like what you hear, or if you're willing to get uncomfortable in this conversation with us, please click on that follow or subscribe button. And if you want to share your comments or feedback with us, feel free to email us anytime at justice at cgnortheast.com. Until next time.